Here we go. Folks, this is your host Cameron Ivy of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Our first unplugged. This is the first unplugged. We are unplugged. What is different about Privacy Please plugged versus unplugged? Really, I mean. Where well, I don't, I don't know. During a regular show, <laughs> I don't know if uh, anybody ever uh, describes this as plugged first. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, unplugged for sure is a little more raw, and it's just us two going yeah. through some topics from from previous episodes and stuff like that. So diving a little bit deeper and just uh, having a conversation. Well, look, as our first unplugged topic. Let's let's revisit one of the uh, the things that that that, um, that you you blogged about. Uh, that was mm-hmm. uh, yeah the podcast blog in particular, the Microsoft um, attack. Uh, Big one. It was, yeah, it was a significantly large phishing attack affected like ten thousand orgs or more. So some very very large number. And this, because this is an unplugged episode, I actually don't really want to talk about the attack itself. The attack mm-hmm. itself is what it is. It happens. Yeah, we know that those things are going to happen. And it happens. It, it happens. I'm not even, I'm not even going to pick on Microsoft for the fact that it happens. Like, like, dude, they, they've got the largest target on their backs. Like, mm-hmm. that's, that's where I'm going after also from the bad guys, right? Like, their infrastructure in particular or the, the infrastructure that their customers use. <clears throat> Because they're larger, does that make them more more, more vulnerable? Can't even talk. More vulnerable compared to other organizations? Do you think, or is it yeah. just they're going to get hit more often? So by definition, they have more risk, but not more vulnerable. Meaning that risk is a byproduct of both how vulnerable you are, as well as the likelihood of those things happening, and how often um, there's any there's any opportunity for that thing to happen. How often someone is trying to do that thing being larger, right? Like they don't necessarily have any more vulnerabilities than anyone else does. In fact, they probably have far fewer because Microsoft is an amazingly adept security organization, but because they are larger, they certainly have more opportunities to have more vulnerabilities and there are more people coming at them more frequently. So the risk, the risk is larger. The inherent risk is certainly much larger. Now, right. being the single largest security company on the planet also, um, that is a purveyor of security products, the inherent risk, although being large, we would expect the residual risk, the risk that's left over after you have put some controls or mitigating things in place to address mm-hmm. the inherent risk. The residual risk that Microsoft has left over, again, we expect that there's to be far lower than most. The thing that annoys me, though, is the, the, the concentration risk, the cloud concentration risk of all of your services and data, et cetera, with any one cloud provider, and I apologize, I'm not picking on Microsoft, but with any one cloud provider is part of the problem here. It's part of the problem. I understand the attack well enough to know that, that 
that maybe having some decentralized things there would, would have still, if you're still just using that centralized service for authentication, some of those other pieces, you might be in trouble. Um, but ultimately, I see part of the larger problem here is what, why is everyone running so fast towards this amount of centralized risk for themselves? Mm. Is it easy? I guess it's easy. Microsoft does make it easy. You can just buy, you can buy a license and look, you got all the things. Right. Right. Like here's, here's an E5 license. You now own everything. Good luck. Like go deploy it all, manage it all. Like, and, and again, I, I, I apologize if it sounds like I'm, I'm kind of getting on them. Amazing products in that portfolio stack. But I think it is becoming, I think it's becoming such that a lot of organizations are ignoring the cloud concentration risk. Now, Microsoft, you might imagine, has addressed this very topic, right? Like, you have to imagine that Microsoft being one of the premier cloud service providers, they are one of the, what I refer to as, uh, as uh, hyperscale vendors in this in this area, right? They're, they're a hyperscale cloud service provider. You would think that cloud concentration risk is something they address because it is both good for them and not so good for them. It's good for them in the sense that, hey, you if you put all your eggs in that basket, that's they, they, that's their basket, right? Like, <laughs> I'm basket, baby, get them all in. <laughs> and so they've addressed this. They they very publicly have a a, a, a statement and. And there's um, there's like a three page, four page document uh, on it. I I read it as recently as in the last seven days, but I don't have it sitting in front of me. It's not relevant mm-hmm. enough for that. But maybe we post the links to it. I'll be honest with you. They they dodge the answers of, of of why cloud concentration risk is a thing that even their customers should address. And I don't blame them. It is. It is really not their business per se to tell other customers how to complicate their lives because right. going multi-cloud complicates your life. And ultimately, if you're Microsoft, your job is to try and solve problems and make their lives less complicated. I would argue that this that cloud concentration risk isn't a problem Microsoft should be the ones responsible for solving. So I'm looking instead at those 10,000 organizations and asking them, what are we doing here? What's, what's with all the concentration risk? You know, that makes me think um, as a a good way to put that Microsoft is trying to, I don't even know if they were trying to be, or just the way it kind of fell into the laps of being a Swiss army knife in this realm. I don't think everybody uses every single thing on that, that army knife. <laughs> and and I, I lost yeah, it a couple of days. Not, not to say that those are always the best. They got some good stuff, but, right. um, and just for listeners that are listening right now, if you didn't catch the, the episode last week, um, I, I specifically talked over, this article that we're that Gabe is talking about, and just to give you reference, um, there was a an attack. There was a large amount of attacks against organizations. Uh, it was through uh, using uh, it was threat actors using landing pages designed to hijack the uh, Office 365 authentication process, known as MFA. So, just to give you a little reference on what we're kind of talking about as well. Yeah. Um. Now, what's good, one of the things that I learned about this article, Gabe, is that not necessarily is it really that big of a deal. Yeah. Because people are going to get through multi-factor authentication, but it doesn't mean that you probably should get rid of it because people can actually break into it, right? It's still a very useful tool. Quite the opposite. Right. It's going to happen. But my question is, is for organizations that probably so many people are probably set up this way. What, what do you do beyond MFA to make sure that you're protected if something like this did happen? 
Well, that gets back to my point about cloud concentration risk in general. Mm -hmm. um, the answer lies in zero trust architecture, right? Um, in fact, I don't know when we're going to release this, but we were just talking about it before we went live. Um, I'll be talking at the uh, ISC Squared Central Florida chapter, and, and, and the topic that I'm talking about is how to start with zero trust when you have no idea where to start. <laughs> oh, well, you don't have to use that. This is going to come out talk, no, Wednesday. Oh, no, no, no. This okay. Is, actually, okay. I, I, I presented this at RSA earlier this year, too. It's... Um, Okay, awesome. Yeah, no, th this information wants to be free. The answer is, in a, in a, I, was, I was searching for the, the NIST uh, publication. I mean, the answer lies in SP 800-207, zero trust architecture, right, as defined by NIST. Um, and it is not anything. It's not, a, it's not any one thing. It mm -hmm. is a collection of principles, right, um, as well as uh, some practices that focuses on the removal of, of inherent trust from your entire digital environment. I use, I, 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 I paraphrase some of the words there, like, you know, the removal of inherent trust. It doesn't explicitly say, quote, the removal of inherent trust, but that is exactly what all those things build up to. Um, yeah. because I, I equally, speaking of RSA, I equally heard a number of folks throwing around on the floor the notion that somehow 2, 2FA and MFA is zero trust. And I'm like, wait, what? No. That's why, why is that a confusion there? You think? I, I think it's either, um, you know, if I'm being generous, it, it is uh, it is a happy accident by marketers not fully understanding that MFA is is but one very tiny part of your larger mm. zero trust strategy. Um, yeah. if, again, if I'm being generous, if I'm if I'm not being so generous, I, I think uh, because there's so much uncertainty and, and lack of clarity around zero trust for some folks, is an opportunity for less than scrupulous marketers to 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 make claims that don't really add up to you know what words mean in real life. <laughs> <laughs> what do these words mean? Like I know what these words mean. But not the way you just used them, and certainly not in that <laughs> sentence. In that sentence, those words lost all meaning for me, all of their meaning. Um, but that—that—that's to answer your question. That's where it lies. It lies in not just a quote layered approach to security. Layers aren't enough because layers will just add in additional just that layers of security controls. And what we're really trying to get to with zero trust architecting is the removal of inherent trust. And addition through subtraction is a real thing here. You can certainly add in new procedures, new policies, new technology that removes the inherent trust. But simply adding in any of those things, people, process technology, for the additional layer of more trust is an antithesis to zero trust, right? Like that, that is exactly why a removing MFA is bad because you've just now defeated one of the reasons why you would, you would, you know, work towards zero trust uh, environment, but also simply adding it in as a quote layer is also uh, disingenuous and, and a bit ignorant. The answer is that there are multiple steps and, and it, it will all depend on, on where your journey needs to begin individual to your organization. Uh, but in the vein of this conversation, as it relates to MFA, if you don't already, if you're not already using MFA, you you should. Duh. Maybe not duh. Sorry. Yes. But yes, you should. Doi. How about yes, that one? Doi. <laughs> uh, if you do have cloud concentration risk, including 
including your own site concentration risk. You should absolutely, absolutely look at dissolving that. You should, you should not have all of your assets in one. I understand the struggle that, that that entails, but I also understand that technology has made a lot of strides in helping us towards that. This Unplugged episode isn't the one to, to dive into that, but resources are indeed available. Maybe, yeah. maybe we should equally publish publish the slide deck that I'll use uh, next week um, for that, that talk on where to start with Zero Trust when you don't yeah. know where, such that we don't leave our, our, our listeners in this vague, uh, you keep telling us about it, Gabe, but you didn't tell me anything of what to do. I want to leave you <laughs> with what to do because that is the biggest problem. We just don't have time for it in an unplugged episode. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so we'll share that in the notes. Um, Look, if you happen to be in that Central Florida area too, you know you should you should be yeah. checking out that IC squared uh, chapter. They they drop a lot of hot gems, including yours truly, stopping by once in a while. Yeah, and uh, selfless plug, um, you'll be presenting next Monday um, over there in Orlando at Full Sail University. I think yeah. it starts around six. So if you guys are listening and you want to come out, sign up. Come on out. We'll be there. Do if it. you want to see us in person, it's a great point. We'll be there. We will we'll, be we'll, there. Privacy, please, will be there live, live. At That's the right. Squared chapter, right? Um, are we going to record from there? Why aren't we recording? Um, I don't know. I mean, we got recording equipment, right? Like, I got to record. We do. Yeah, we got recording equipment. We do. We can record wherever we want. Wherever we want. We should record. <laughs> that. We should record that. Um, so, Ira Winkler is going to also be talking. Ira's awesome. Yep, Ira. Yeah, James McQuiggan is. Uh, MC, he's he's uh, he's one of the leaders in the chapter. Um, yeah. yeah, I think you guys know who that guy is. I think you know who James is. He's been on the podcast you're three, four times. Regular listener, you, you're familiar. You're familiar indeed. Yeah, come on down. So, so you were um, you were talking about you were going into the NIST NIST thing, and I know that in last week's episode we talked about That's right. um, NIST, this big update that came out. Um, about the four quantum resistant cryptographic algorithms. That's fun to say, by the way. It is. NIST all up in our conversation today. I forgot about that, but that's true. Yeah. You, uh, you talked about them last week also. What was that article um, they announced? So just briefly to give everybody uh, kind of a background. So it's the, the U.S. Department of Commerce, uh, their National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is NIST, has announced the first group of encryption tools that will become part of its post-quantum cryptographic standard what does that actually mean well it means that quite some time ago we all acknowledged that quantum computing will be a reality someday it will right. in fact um we built quantum computers in the past it's not like we've never built a quantum computer it's not like one doesn't exist today uh, our ability to to leverage them for different applications is um is difficult. And the, the long, the longer data stays in that quantum state, the harder it's been for us to keep it stable. So to be fair, we haven't had a really usable one, right? Like it's not, not been super usable. Think of them as proof of concepts, but we're mm -hmm. getting close. We're getting damn close. And when we get close, a lot of the encryption schemes we have in place today, they're going to crumble. They're, they're going to fall at the As if they have all six stones or seven stones and then just a snap. Just like that. Just like that, you will hear. This, does, this sounds like a uh, Avengers Endgame right here <laughs> with the quantum. Every you will hear every bit of encrypted data cry out in terror the first day someone has a a quantum machine actively cracking passwords and crypto as we know it today. Um, 
the world the world will will cry out harmoniously in um in, in pain um, do you think that we're going to get to a point where something in technology is i mean we're just could we completely lose just like i don't know internet for example could do that across now. the world could do that yeah now. i know yeah no the loft crew presented to congress to the senate back in like the 2000s on just how easy it is to take down the entire internet nothing has changed since that like fundamentally the infrastructure that is the internet is as fragile now as it was then fundamentally mm. it is why like really important things like really really important things and i know a lot of people think your water supply and your, your electricity supply that's really important but i mean i mean things like like some of our defense networks are not on what you know is the public internet for that reason yeah it doesn't exist there it just doesn't exist there um it's not like it's like tour network and it's like hidden in like the dark web of the no no it's not on the public infrastructure you know is the internet we could lose all that stuff but the thing about you know, the first four quantum resistant cryptographic algorithms is we know that quantum machines will crack those things. So we need some new algorithms that can create quantum resistant mm -hmm. encryption. And we need that fast. So we've been getting closer to standardizing on that. And that's what NIST announced was the first four finalists in that. So that's good news, right? Like we're, we're getting closer to like, all right, use these four algorithms and they will be resistant to quantum attacks. There are other ways to be resistant to quantum attacks today. Um, secret sharing is probably the most commonly referenced one of those types of, of mechanisms, right? So like when you think about a lot of encryption today, you think about like public key, private key, right? Like you have a public key that you give out and, and you sign all of your, your, your email signatures with that public key and then you encrypt it with your private key. And then I have a copy of my, my keys and your public key and then I decrypt it using that, right? Um, a lot of crypto mechanisms work in that public, private, synchronous, asynchronous way. But, key, but, but secret sharing, secret sharing makes it such that if, if you don't have all the secrets, then no amount of quantum computing can break, can break the encryption. Of course, there's that big if, right? Like, so then, ah, great. All I have to do is go get all the secrets. All I have to do is go get all the secrets. So then there's ways you make that more difficult. But ultimately, you see the problem is, is even though theoretically different types of secret sharing mechanisms are resistant to quantum attacks, even those will fall if you have all the secrets. Keeping all the secrets at bay is actually slightly easier than not, though, right? But not impossible. Think, think Dumbledore. Think a horcrux. Think okay. taking yourself the secret and splitting it into a bunch of pieces and then hiding those pieces all over the world, right? No amount of, of, of quantum computing would have put, put, uh, now I said Dumbledore, but I, but it was, I, I, that's the wrong character. I'm about to get, you're my, talking about, I'm, you're talking about Harry Potter. Voldemort. Yeah. I'm talking about Harry Potter. I'm talking about Voldemort. Yeah. 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 We're about to get, we're about to get a lot of ads. Don't at me. <laughs> no better than at, me at this point, hopefully. Right? Like, yeah, I've listened to the show before. Don't bother at me. I'm not listening to it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, same fantasy world, whatever. Indeed, indeed, but 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 again, the, the same premise to to use an analogy. If you didn't have all of the Horcruxes, no amount of quantum computing in this analogy would have been able to have destroyed Voldemort. You need all right. the pieces. So this this latest announcement by NIST is uh, is just announcing that that we are getting closer to some standardizing around some quantum resilient cryptographic algorithms. So yeah, it says it's still like two years away from 
being finalized, and then they estimate the post-quantum threats could be a reality as soon as 2030. Yeah, that's so, not that far from now. That's that's eight years. That's a eight years. seven and a, and a half. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that'll not come quick. Long. Yeah. So every everything that you've ever encrypted and thought, ah, that's safe, or you encrypted and threw the key away and said, ah, that's safe. Like, how does that work? In fact, which is something that I never quite understood also, too. We, we didn't bring this up in one of our other episodes. But, you know, what? we should have we should have one of our privacy experts back to discuss the following. There was a period mm-hmm. of time and that period of time might still exist where folks were were encrypting data and throwing away the key as a mechanism for satisfying the right to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. But just because you threw the key away and that cryptographic mechanism is now breakable via a quantum computer. Like it's, it's only safe in privacy in theory. Now, of course the law can't deal in theory all day long. It has to get down to practicalities, but what happens in eight years? Hmm. I don't know. Anyway, that's unplugged, man. That's something to, that's something to leave you guys with to think about. That's, Thanks, Gabe. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Okay. Well, appreciate you guys listening. Hope you enjoyed. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Hey, you guys made it all the way to the end. Thanks for listening. Again, if this is your first time, we really appreciate the support and everyone that's always been around since the beginning. We love you guys. Keep supporting Privacy, please. And we'll always have new content each and every week. Cameron Ivy, over and out.